Support for WFIU News comes from Bunger and Robertson, attorneys at law, utilizing 75 years of experience, knowledge, and resources to help individuals and families recover in personal injury matters. Information at lawbr.com. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie. Today we're talking with experts about Senate Bill 1 and Indiana's literacy issues. We have four guests joining us. They're all joining us on Zoom. Senator Linda Rogers is a Republican senator from Granger. She represents District 11 and is the author of Senate Bill 1. Dr. Hardy Murphy is clinical associate professor in the IUPUI Urban Leadership and Policy Studies Program and a former superintendent of schools. Rachel Burke is at-large member of the Metropolitan School District of Warren Township. Uh, she is a form- the former president of the Indiana Parent Teachers Association. And Dr. Dorothea Irwin is assistant superintendent of elementary education for the Monroe County Community School Corporation. If you have questions or comments today, you can follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. We're at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there. You can also send questions or comments to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We are not taking phone calls today. So thank you very much. Um, I'm going to start with Senator Rogers. So Senate Bill 1, kind of outline what's in the bill and why it's necessary. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about Senate Bill 1. I'm a former teacher, although I didn't teach reading. I taught secondary math. Uh, Senate Bill 1 is to address uh, Indiana's literacy. And what's happening consistently over the last few years is that one out of five students are not proficient in reading by the end of third grade. And this is kind of at a crisis level because we want to ensure that every child that leaves the third grade is able to read. And so the focus of the legislation is to first identify and remediate students that are having difficulty in reading. And so we can provide them with the extra attention that they need and help them along. That's probably the biggest part of the legislation is is asking our schools to help these students that are our struggling readers. We are also asking that in second grade, they also uh, give the students the iRead assessment. Currently, it is optional and about 60% of the students or schools are doing that today. And the iRead is actually written at a second grade reading level. And so if a student has, is unable to, be, to pass the iRead in second grade, then we're asking schools to provide summer school and giving a priority for literacy based on the science of reading. I think that's the most important part is that we ensure that every time we teach reading we're using the science of reading now that one then, oh, go ahead go ahead no i was just going to for defining the science of reading that was legislation that went through last year correct can yes, you that get, is correct yeah summarize that for us well uh, basically it's i think how most of us learn to read is using phonetics and sounding out a word 
there's been a number of schools that are utilizing what's called three queuing, which as a child or someone reads a, a phrase, they look at the picture on the other side, or they kind of guess as to what the word would be. This is actually a evidence-based way to teach reading. So uh, it's kind of how we all learned to read a number of years ago. So after, uh, if they, uh, again, don't pass in second grade, which currently about two thirds of the students that take the iRead in second grade are passing. So those will be provided with summer school. And in summer school, that way they will strictly focus on reading. And then in third grade, again, they'll be provided with additional remediation, another opportunity to take the iRead exam. And for those that after the second try don't pass it, again, will be afforded summer school. And then when they finish summer school, we'll have at least a third opportunity to take the exam. So everybody has multiple opportunities to pass the exam and certainly significant opportunities to get help in learning how to read. And every child learns differently and in a different pace. And so hopefully by starting as early as kindergarten and identifying those students that can't read, that we are providing and affording them the opportunity to, to learn to read. Because I think as we all know, you know, in grades K through three, you learn to read. And then after that, you read to learn. So we want to ensure that when we move on to fourth grade, we have those basic foundational reading skills. And then as a last resort, and unfortunately, some people call this a retention bill. It is not a retention bill. It is a very limited retention bill in the fact that there are a number of different uh, exemptions. You know, as an example, if someone uh, has passed the math portion of the uh, iLearn exam, they can move on. If someone uh, has not had two years of instruction and they are, you know, and someone that is an English language learner, so there are different exemptions that will uh, allow a student to progress. And there's also an opportunity for a parent to appeal to the school corporation. So again, I, I wanna emphasize that the bill's main focus is identifying and providing remediation to struggling readers so that every child can learn to read. And that's kind of how I've termed this legislation Every child learns to read. I want to ask uh, uh, Dorothea Irwin, the assistant superintendent of elementary education for MCCSC, how would this play out um, in the school corporation? How would it play out on the ground in the, you know, in the second and third grades here in MCCSC? Well, this year we're actually opting in to have our second graders take that assessment. And we're excited about the fact that we'll have kind of a preview of what those students need based on that assessment um, before they enter third grade so that we can get a jump start on any problems that we have not yet identified with students who are learning to read. And so it's really exciting. We've decided we've done a lot of looking into the pros and cons, and we really believe that it will be a positive for our students. And there is research out now on those schools that have used that, that they've seen some real success rate because when they start to do what we call tier two instruction, where you have more individualized um, uh, work with students and you have very small groups that are working on specific skills, um, will be very targeted and focused on those things that we're seeing students are lacking. I want to um, continue to um, ask Senator Rogers, but Dr. Irwin, you can probably also comment on on the kind of staffing and financial impact. Uh, and Dr. Irwin, you were talking about things you're already doing, so you may be seeing some of this already, but I'm just generally curious about uh, the financial impact that might be there from uh, additional efforts that need to be undertaken um, in kindergarten, first, second, as well as third grade, and the financial impact potentially of holding students back. Hard to predict because we don't know how many there are going to be, but um, 
actually, uh, Senator Rogers, um, perhaps you can you can speak first to the financial impact, and then I'd be interested in Dr. Irwin's take on how that's also how this played out in the ground. Well, thank you. Um, what we're doing is, is summer school dollars are already appropriated. And so what we're doing is saying that the summer school dollars are going to uh, be prioritized to literacy because currently the majority of, uh, I think it's around, I shouldn't say majority, but around 50% of the dollars on summer school are allocated to fiscal education. And so I do know also that the um, with the Lilly Grant and the funds that were allocated last year in the budget, we have about $170 million that is allocated to literacy. So we're working very hard to ensure that we're providing enough funding for schools. And I appreciate Dr. Irwin's proactive approach and uh, in her attempt to you know, help struggling students. Yeah, and Dr. Irwin, what's, how's, how have things gone from a financial perspective, um, and and what do you foresee? Well, I'll speak for our district, not for other districts. And of course, it's very different depending on, uh, you know, your financial backing with your community and so forth. But um, but I do know that um, we have been looking at different ways of instructing students, particularly with tier one being our the whole class and everybody is is learning what the standard should be for that particular grade level. And the uh, tier two would be where students are pulled to, um, and, and we really are working to having that pull, being pulled in the classroom, not out of the classroom, because it just takes time for transition and so forth, to be working with students. And when we had the expanded learning teachers, uh, because of the ESSER funds, it was wonderful because we had two teachers per building that that's what they did. They actually worked with students who were having a hard time to kind of catch up with all the loss, learning loss during COVID. Um, so I'm sure that financially, um, you know, that will be an issue, uh, but it's, it's an issue that exists just because we're all striving very hard to make sure that our students are at grade level when they leave that grade level. Um, we really, hope that our efforts will result in no student being retained because we'll do everything that we possibly can prior to that final testing uh, or assessment in third grade. And then the opportunity to take that test again, third grade summer, if they didn't do well um, during the school year. But we think since they will have taken it in second grade, and then we've worked with them through that, that when they take it in third grade, it's not like they're looking at a cold. They've seen that type of testing before. And, um, you know, hopefully that will will bring them where they need to be. But what we are excited about is, and I think as educators, you know, all educators know that finding the root cause of why a child isn't learning is our main goal. We want to make sure that all children are able to access the education and learn and children learn at different speeds, as someone mentioned, and in different ways. So, so we're, we're working on all of that. It's exciting work because we do see progress. And uh, this year we are using dibbles in um, our early grades. And the way Amplify has worked with dibbles right now, we're able to get great data to do beginning of the year, middle of the year, and end of the year assessments where we're able to see growth and that's very exciting to us because it tells us, you know, we're on the right track or we're not on the right track. Uh, so. Okay. Okay. I have to ask, Dibbles, can you, yes. can you, <laughs> can you explain? Yes. Um, Dibbles is, yes, I will. And I apologize for using a, <laughs> an education thing that the general public might not know what it is. But Dibbles actually was out several years ago. We were using it in the schools as assessment, but it has been perfected. And what it is, is looking at sounds. And so different levels are assessed at different ways. So in er very early childhood and kindergarten, it's really about letter recognition and, you know, just learning sounds and what uh, letters, um, what sounds they spell. And I think it's real important that, you know, we've changed that vernacular. So when we're talking about teaching children, we don't say, what's, what does this letter make? 
but it's what sound do they spell. And I think that's important for children to know that those sounds put together with those graphic pieces are what make words. And so we start that at a very early age. And then in first grade, we start looking at, and actually in kindergarten, as you progress through the year, because you have a middle of the year and end of the year piece, you're looking at putting those sounds together. And in first grade, it's more expanded in what you're looking at in those beginning, middle and end. And by second grade, in that Dibbles testing, what you're looking at is now getting more into the comp- comprehension and fluency of the reading. So this so is, it, a, I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it's progressive. And then we use professional learning communities in our district and you know look at data in order to inform our instruction. And those have been a marvelous uh, way to for teachers to come together, to collaborate and to understand why is this group learning and this group isn't. So, so I hope yeah, I've answered your question. Yes, but, yes, very much so. I, I, and so I'm imagining that students are sitting at their desk with um, perhaps iPads and using this um, that's system, right. if you they, will. And then it, it not only obviously teaches the student, as you were describing, but provides uh, comprehensive collective data on on progress and so forth. So you get you get to do you get to see some of the assessment um, as an instructor and administrator. I, is that the is that the case. Well, and actually in the early grades, uh, like in kindergarten, it's a one-on-one thing. So a teacher is actually administering that assessment to the student one-on-one. And so that does take, you know, that does take an extra person to be doing that, but we really see the value in, mm-hmm. in performing that. And it doesn't take a long time for each student. It's very quick. So it's not like they're actually working on this assessment. It's a very quick assessment. And, um, you know, you move on to the next student and then you just do that three times a year. But the data that it provides is really, you know, very beneficial for mm-hmm. teachers. We're talking about Senate, one, Senate Bill 1 on Noon Edition today. It's a, it's a bill that would address Indiana's literacy issues. We have four guests. Senator Linda Rogers, the sponsor of the bill. Um, Hardy Murphy, a clinical associate professor in the IUPUI Urban Leadership and Policy Studies Program. Rachel Burke, a member of the Metropolitan School District of Warren Township, and also a former president of the Indiana Parent Teachers Association. And Dorothea Good- Irwin, who is assistant superintendent of elementary education for MCCSC. If you have questions, you can send them to us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, send questions there. Uh, we're at Noon Edition. So um, I want to turn to Hardy Murphy next. Um, Hardy, you've been following this bill. Are you as comfortable with it as Senator Rogers and uh, Dorothea Irwin seem to be? Um, I'm not sure I heard Dorothy say she was confident. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I think uh, Senator Rogers... Um, the position she's taken and how important it is for students to uh, develop reading skills early on in their academic careers is absolutely the right position. Um, and the kind of commitment to making sure that happens that's um, born of a kind of concern about what we've been seeing and outcomes for students in Indiana for some time, I think that is right on and well-placed. Now, having said that, um, and I'm going to disagree respectfully in terms of the uh, approach, mainly for the how different things are prioritized. And so I'd like to put a question on the table for everyone. I've been thinking about how to frame this because I have discussions with people all the time about statistics and studies and the research and it's, then it becomes the big picture, and I start talking about, you know what, you have to understand that research is about the general case. Um, the statistics we see are about the big picture. But it, you can't have a big picture without the individual cases. And so when you t- start talking about the individual case and the impact going from kindergarten to third grade, you know, you have to ask yourselves this question. Have you ever had a conversation with a kindergartner (laughs) who did not want to learn to read. And I want to let that sink in for a second. I'll say it again. Have you ever had a conversation with a kindergartner who did not want to learn to read? 
That's an important statement here because third grade and these decisions we're making are the culmination of something that has happened at least from kindergarten and perhaps from pre-K. So when we approach the, the question that way and not look at it in terms of the big picture in the general sense, let's talk about it on the individual sense and what, what could have happened to that child. Over the past three or four years, we've seen enormous teacher turnover for a number of different directions. One of them is because people don't find the profession as an attractive profession to be in. Others are because baby boomers are maturing and exiting the, the profession and replacing them is very difficult. So ask yourself this question. Are those children who are failing to learn to read, have they experienced the impact of that difficulty in staffing classrooms with highly qualified people who engage with them in ways that understand that they want to learn to read and inspire them to do so? That's thing one. Um, the second piece to it is that even if we look at hiring teachers and filling classrooms, the other thing that happens to us is because of COVID and other things happening that we have, and we looked at in terms of how often that child experiences a substitute in the classroom. And you start marrying these kinds of concerns with the fact that the child, uh, him or herself, may in fact be experiencing some things in their personal lives that have an impact really truly beyond the child's control. And yet what we're doing is we're putting a system in place where I know that we're trying to address many of those issues, but what we are doing for the current cohort of third graders and second graders and first graders and kindergartners is that we're putting a system in place that's intended to address something, a treatment, if you will, the quality of the education that the child is getting. And Senator Rogers, I don't mean to offend you with this, but at the end of the day, of the day what we're doing essentially is saying to the child, it's your fault that you haven't learned to read. So we're going to hold you back a year. In researching the intervention as it occurred in other states not named here, um, and why people got excited about it, there were a couple of reasons to explain it. Sure, a number of those things were out there in terms of the reading technique of science, uh, the, the science of reading, which really is not new. Um, you know, phonics way back, back in the day uh, became the solution to it all. And I think what people learned was, you know, students can learn to pronounce the words. Comprehension is a different matter. And then also the level of interest and the reward from reading also precipitates, if you will, a stronger desire to learn when they move into the intermediate elementary years. However, Hardy, can I break? Can I cut you off for just for a second? Linda Rogers has to leave at twelve thirty, so I want to give her an opportunity okay. if, to react to some of the things you've said, Senator Rogers. Well, thank you, and Hardy, I really don't disagree with anything that you've said. Um, you're absolutely right. There are, you know, a myriad of reasons why a child is having difficulty. <clears throat> Uh, learning to read. And certainly, you're absolutely right. Every child wants to learn to read. And I think uh, this is kind of setting a framework of how it's going to work. And I, I really appreciate what Dr. Irwin said and how she outlined, you know, her strategy and how they do the one-on-one. -on -one. And as you do a one-on-one, -on -one, you find out, you know, what is the reason? Is, you know, is it the teacher? Most likely not, but is it the home life? Maybe they've never seen a book before where a lot of kids are read to, you know, as infants. So there's so many different ways, but I, I really have full faith and confidence in our educators. And when Dr. Irwin said that she doesn't want any of her students to have to be retained and she doesn't think they will, I agree with her. That's the goal is to ensure that we're doing everything on the front end to make sure that we're helping these children so that they can be successful in life. Because if we continue to move students on, and right now we're moving on, you know, we had 7,000 
last year and we moved 96% of them on. And so are we setting them up for failure down the road? And so you brought up studies. Uh, I just want to address that quickly is that I read numerous studies on retention. And in those studies, there were some that said, no, that it isn't good. Some said, yes, it was good. It helped the child. And after reading all of the studies, I, my conclusion was one, that if you retain a child in the early years, it helps the child and they do better rather than waiting until they're older. And then the other is, is the people that said they, that retention was a problem said that it was because, you know, when they take the same grade over again, they're doing the same thing over and over again. And I have confidence in our educators and our school corporations that they are going to make it different. So you could have a class with, you know, third graders and maybe with fourth graders that just barely passed more on a mastery based type of system. But listening to Dr. Irwin, I'm confident that her school corporation will identify the very best way to move children on and have them so that every child learns to read. Well, I thank you all for the opportunity to be here today. And I'm sorry I have to leave <laughs> early, but it was wonderful joining all you. All right. That's okay. Thank you, Senator Rogers. We hope you make it. Uh, you're not late at your next appointment. Thank you. All right. Thank um, you. Uh, Hardy, I want to get back to your thoughts, but first I do want to bring Rachel Burke on. She's been patient with us and hasn't had an opportunity to join the conversation yet. So, um, Rachel, your views on Senate Bill 1, I mean, where do you stand as a member of a school board and a former president of the Indiana Parent Teachers Association? Uh, what, what do you see as the strengths and are there any weaknesses? So, the intervention aspects of Senate Bill 1 are easy to support. Um, having the ability to test students earlier to see where they are reading-wise, to see what their specific strengths and weaknesses are in second grade, as well as to give more data to teachers for teaching to third grade. And then I think most importantly, something Dr. Irwin said, making sure that when students sit down to take iReading 3, that it's not the very first big state test they've ever sat down for um, is incredibly important for a comfort level. I think focusing on summer school and all of those interventions that are built into the bill are absolutely wonderful. Um, my concern and the concern of Indiana PTA comes down to the retention piece. This isn't a retention bill, but it has a mandatory retention piece in it. And there are as many stories as there are students in the state of Indiana about those students. And this bill is solving a problem by painting over what is an incredibly wide brush. It needs to be a decision between the administration, the teachers, and the parents as to whether or not a child is retained. There needs to be the ability to take into account external circumstances, um, what is best for the child in the future, and all of those other things, rather than just passing a bill that states, other than with these cutout exemptions, if a child fails this test um, at the end of the summer, at the end of their third grade year, that they cannot be advanced to fourth grade. And that really is the line in the sand that I can't get onto the other side of. Um, there has to be a way um, to have that discussion, to be able to look at that student thoughtfully and to make the decision that is best for that student, not the decision that covers every single third grader in the state of Indiana. All right. I want to go back to, to Hardy Murphy because I think Hardy may have you know some similar thoughts to that, but I won't put words in. I would never put words in the mouth of Hardy Murphy. Believe me, <laughs> I couldn't possibly do it. Hardy, uh, I cut you off there, though. I want to make sure you have an opportunity to finish your thoughts and then react to what Rachel Burke said. I'm not sure I ever finished my thoughts. You know, sometimes <laughs> I say to myself, you know, maybe you should have only spoken about a couple of two or three things. But I'd like to make a point about how this, I know that we all want students to learn how to read, children to learn how to read. 
but you know it's hard to take it out of the context of this, this being driven by test scores and accountability systems i looked at the material that you folks sent me that was covered by one of the news organs and i started looking at the lead-in sentence for each of those stories and it's all about the senate bills is being enacted to improve test scores i mean it, it, you can fact check me on it to see if that isn't the lead-in that's a little problematic because you know ever since we've gotten into the the, the accountability of public education we've been driven by test scores I think more so than the fact that those test scores, each one represents an individual child. It's a human being. So let's talk about the test scores for a second. So diabetes test scores, roughly, roughly 80% of the children pass. And I think the governor's target is to have 95% passing in, what, three, four, five years. And you can break that down on an incremental basis to how many students you're talking a year to factor in what does that mean as far as a kindergarten cohort? However, even if we reach 95% on the IREAD, remember that the I-Learn statistics are 40% who are reaching proficiency. So that's roughly half of the numbers of students who are reaching proficiency on the IREAD. So even if we get to 95%, we still are going to be somewhere down in the, the, the high 40s, low 40s, or 50s in terms of the percentage of children who are failing, I learn. So this in and of itself is not the answer. Um, the issue then becomes, if we're going to address supports and interventions to ensure that those students become proficient, how then are they connected to the interventions and supports that we are putting in place, K-3? And I'm going to conclude with this piece. That says to me that prior to doing a part of the, in quotes, fix, I think we need a real study to see what the K-12 fix is. That then allows us to go into this with our eyes open, to make sure that the guardrails are in place, to have anticipated the negative consequences of what could happen if we retain up to um, 20 or 30 percent of the students in a particular cohort, kindergarten cohort. Because when you look at the national data where this has been implemented and aggregate those figures across the years, K through three, you're looking at approximately 30% of a kindergarten cohort that has been retained. So there is an illusion of improvement that doesn't bear itself out when you start looking at the details. I'd be uh, interested, first, be, before I say anything, in response to what, um, what Hardy brought up is to hear from uh, Dr. Irwin um, your thoughts on what he has raised here. I am totally on board with what, what you've said, Hardy. I, um, as a matter of fact, when you were speaking in the beginning, I was just taking notes because you said it so eloquently. And I don't want to give the impression that I've ever been in favor of the retention part because that really does concern me. Um, I've been in education for a long time. And um, I know that uh, the social implications of failure for a student who can't move on to the next grade. We're learning more and more all the time about how to teach children that are struggling. And we have many more statistics available to us today than we did years ago. And so many more directions as to how we can teach better, how we can learn better. There's just constant research. But I, I would hate to think that we would ever rely on retention as a possible remedy for a student not learning a specific task. And when we talk about how people can be, you can have different levels within a classroom, that's the way it has always been. We just need to become better equipped to be able to differentiate in that classroom. And uh, to understand like the, the um, understanding by design for learning for um, students in order to recognize the barriers that a specific lesson might have for them no matter what the subject area is, 
Um, that's really important for teachers. But what you said, Hardy, about the whole impact of the environment right now for teachers and teaching and the uh, pressure that is put on teachers with constant assessments, um, those things are real. And um, students today in a classroom are very different than they were um, before COVID hit. There's a lot of social emotional learning that needs to go on in a school in order to help children. They've been traumatized and so have teachers. And we see a lot more aggression and students meltdowns and, and there's not enough mental health resources for us. We need to have mental health resources in all of our schools to help with our students and our communities need to have more mental health resources. So I, I would just like to say that um, mm -hmm. and that the retention piece has always bothered us mm -hmm. as educators, I think, yeah. um, because we've never really seen where it's been a positive unless a child is really young and socially they're not adjusting socially and maybe not academically, but it has to do with their developmental stage. Yeah. Yeah. Rachel, do you want to add anything here, particularly your your point about the the decision to retain needs to involve the parents, and you're obviously very in, engaged with parents, um, that perspective. Um, anything you'd like to add from from that in response to what some of the things that Hardy was, was raising? Um, I, I agree with everything that um, Hardy has raised. You know, obviously there are bigger crises. Well, I don't know if there are bigger crises, but there are many crises going on in Indiana's education system. We have a teacher shortage. Um, we, we, we cannot guarantee that in kindergarten through third grade, these students are receiving high quality um, education from a highly qualified teacher um, because there simply aren't enough of them. Um, and yes, our students are over-assessed. And to Dr. Irwin's point, the, the mental health crisis, I spend a lot of time working with middle schoolers, not elementary students, but is very real. And I don't think there's anyone who works with students every day who doesn't have a story that um, attests to that truth. Um, when it comes to parent conferences or having parents involved, um, I, I have some personal experience when it comes to I read three. Um, my youngest daughter failed the test um, when she took it. And more than that, we knew that that was what was going to happen. We knew it was going to happen from the beginning of second grade. Um, it was not a surprise. There were other things um, that we found out later that were going on with her. But in the end, retaining her, which was not a choice that was made, um, would have been detrimental to her education overall. Um, and luckily, you know, and I think less than luckily, I think most school districts would do what Dr. Irwin said. Given the opportunity, they're going to look at the overall picture of the child, what's going on, and um, make the decision that is best for the child when given that opportunity. And so she was advanced into the fourth grade, as she should have been, um, and is now a very highly successful high school student. Um, and she's one story of many where between parents and administrators, they got together and had the discussion and the classroom teacher about what would be best for the child. And then that decision was made. Um, and being able to maintain that is just incredibly important, not only for um, kind of the past version of my kid, but for those children that look like my child that are going to be currently in third grade next year. Yeah. If I can just uh, follow up one more uh, back back to Hardy. When you were talking about this and, and th things both that Dr. Irwin and Rachel both raised too, we kind of reinforced this whole issue of of getting high-quality instructors in the classroom, high-quality teachers. And uh, I wonder, Hardy in particular, if you can um, shed any light on how uh, – well, obviously, Senate Bill 1 hasn't passed and isn't reality yet, but, but all of the work that's gone on over the past years have affected how we are training and recruiting students to come to, to schools of education and uh, in order to, to increase uh, both the, um, the size and quality of our teachers. Um, can, you, can you speak any more to what you're seeing happening in schools of education in terms of training? So... I'll try to respond to that. Do you mind if I make a few more points that I think are important to the discussion? Go right ahead. <laughs> okay. 
Because one of the things that I felt like it was important to ask senators before she left, uh, and maybe there will be another opportunity, because there are a number of groups and people who are involved in the lobbying process at the state legislature. And everyone is scratching their heads because they're trying to do this little dance of, well, let's not offend anybody by opposing the entire bill. Let's say there are parts of it that we don't like, but you know what? We really like the literacy piece, but, you know, is there something we can do so that we can eliminate the retention piece? And, you know, I just wanted to ask her, you know, what would she like to see in order for a reconsideration of the mandatory retention piece? Because no one is really talking about they're treating it as if mandatory retention is part of the answer because there is no rebuttal to mandatory retention. And I think there is. And we've been talking about some of them. Even when you look at the study that everyone quotes, they talk about significance at the 10% level. I can't get a study published at the 10% level. It just won't happen. They don't consider that as a strong enough indicator that the results are not due to chance. The other piece to this research, and I'm getting there, believe me or not, <laughs> is that when you uh, <clears throat> review this research and they start talking about the retention, that some of the commentary is that it changes adult behaviors. They do things differently for children if they think they're at greater risk of being retained. Um, another piece is then you have to look at what does it look like in terms of the child's development. That's the disability piece and the valid referral and identification of children who aren't thriving in an instructional environment. But the last piece is really important. And that is that, how do you make sure that those children who start out as kindergartners wanting to learn to read, the light doesn't go in, out in their eyes? And that's about whether or not they are motivated and inspired to learn, instead of thinking that at the third grade you can punish them and motivate them to be a, be afraid to fail because they won't advance. That is a very different framework for inter interacting with teachers and children. So now, what's happening at the university level? I think that everyone understands that depending upon something called the enabling context, and that simply means the environment of the school community, the beliefs of those in the school community, what people think works in terms of instruction strategy and how to address them. At IUPUI, we were fortunate enough to get a grant that uh, my, my, our dean and some others put together to train teachers to reach into whatever it is that turns children on and I'm going to use the term culturally responsive teaching, which is simply about honoring, admiring, and valuing who children are and where they came from. We are trying to make sure that our graduates are able to connect with children that way. And we're trying to say to them that teaching is an exciting and rewarding profession. However, in order for this to work, I think we have to create an enabling context where people know that they're going to be supported for success when they leave and get into the schools. And I think that's the key. We're going to have to create different ways to support teachers so that they can connect with students better, that they are better able to design and deliver instruction that's relevant to students. I'm going to give you a statement here that's going to cause everybody to stop for a second. For years, we've been into children need to learn the big ideas and the essential questions. I would argue that they do that every day before and after school. It is only when we get into school that all of a sudden, certain children can't get the big ideas and the essential questions. That's not a fault of the child. It's a fault of our system. So how would you go about changing the system, Hardy? I think what you do is you have to do outreach to people so that they think that um, they are supported in the process. I've been involved with uh, something called the National Implementation Research Network for a number of years where we've been working. I've been a key advisor and an evaluator where they have taken this idea that we have answers. Let's make sure that we put the system in place so that we can change the implementation context to support teachers. It's called implementation science. Mm -hmm. It is true collaboration because it elevates the voices of the, the teachers in the system to the decision-making level. 
through a series of conversations starting with an instructional partnership with their principals. Two, vehicles at the school level for working with teachers to solve problems. And if those problems can't be solved at the school level, they then go to the central office. But everything is driven by the teacher's voice. And the circle that completes itself is when that teacher sees that the changes that they need to design and deliver highly effective instructions that motivates children through interest and relevance, they see that the changes they asked for happened. I think if our, our state is really going to implement, implement um, the science of reading, they've got to put a system like that in place to ensure that teacher voice is elevated throughout the state mm -hmm. to make sure that the science of reading is implemented with fidelity. Let me ask uh, our other two guests. Rachel Burke is on a school board in uh, Metropolitan, Metropolitan School District of Warren Township, and Dorothea Irwin is Assistant Superintendent of Elementary Education for the MCCSC. When you think of your individual school corporation, do you see it um, being driven by the teacher voice, as, as Hardy suggests, is the right way to go? Rachel? Um, I think that's absolutely the right way to go. Teachers are the people that are working in the classroom that have the most face time with children and that are best able to recognize what is and is not working um, much more quickly than an administrator looking at a data drop that takes place every three months or six months or however long um, it goes between assessments. Uh, I think that that is an incredibly I think making sure that teachers have the ability to make comments like that and make sure that, particularly with the science of reading, that the curriculum is being used with fidelity, that the curriculum that is chosen by the district really is the science of reading and really is doing what it is supposed to do is just incredibly important. Berthia? Um, I totally agree with both um, both of you, and um, I have always been a believer as as a student, and then as a teacher and parent, and eventually uh, principal and in administration now, that voice from all the stakeholders is really so important, and we need to provide the opportunity for people to be able to speak their truth. And we have to listen. And a lot of this comes from students as well. We have to understand uh, if students feel included in the environment in which they're in and uh, do they feel like they're being listened to and respected. That's very, very important. And as far as the teachers are concerned, it's the same thing. So we listening is really a big part of what admin does now um, in trying to find out what is the culture and the climate in the schools? And it's so exciting in a district to be able to really delve deep and to be vulnerable and to be able to listen and to be able to hear those voices and act on them. And I think it's very important in our classrooms that we we have teachers that um, they collaborate together. I, I mean, anything that I've ever done, I've, you know, people say, oh, that was so great what you did. And it's like, I didn't, if I would never have been able to do what I did if it hadn't been for all of the people that surrounded me, including students who inspired and helped me understand um, the whole idea of teaching. And so I think that it is important for us to listen to one another. And that's why, you know, um, when teachers come together and they talk about what it is that they want, and it's really a constructive conversation because they're being listened to, we can get much further than if we just kind of push aside or ignore what's going on. And, and fortunately, I'm not in an environment where that's occurring. We absolutely have voice. And I was sitting in on a student equity team recently, and it was incredible what those students, uh, the voices that they had and the research that they had done and the things that they were teaching us. And so we all are learners. And, um, you know, I I agree. I agree mm -hmm. with both of you. Okay, we, we only have about three minutes to go. Hardy, I wanna, I wanna kick this off with you. Um, and I just wonder about if this bill goes through with the retention piece in it, is there going to be um, a socioeconomic, are there socioeconomic factors 
poverty, um, racial makeup, free and reduced lunch costs. Are, are certain schools going to be affected more than other schools? I think so. Um, and I think that, you know, there's research that bears that out. Although when I looked at the Illinois statistics, Indiana statistics, I'm sorry, the Indiana statistics, that it seems like the profile is a little different here than in other places. But I do think that, you know, Bob, I'm going to say something that maybe is going to be a little off the question okay, that you asked, sure. uh, but it's related to it. You know, when you look at the the, the numbers that come out of places um, in, like Mississippi, um, and then you Google up something that you Google up the Mississippi incarceration rates, the headline you get is that they, um, they imprison more people than any democracy on earth. And when you look at the African-American incarceration rate in Mississippi, African-Americans are 37% of the Mississippi population. They become 65%, I believe, of the incarcerated adults. They started retaining people in 2012 with fairly large numbers. Those people have exited the high schools, and we don't know what the relationship is between that retention and those incarceration numbers. So you asked me a question, I took it to the logical end, uh -huh. and you'll find more of this kind of stuff discussed in the new Jim Crow, which argues that that is a fundamental foundation in how we create and perpetuate inequality. And this is my last comment. Okay. The decision of retention is a decision that reflects the character of public education. Because we don't always get and look at the pragmatics in terms of the moral implications and the ethical implications. Our job is to serve, protect, and nurture children, not to create trauma for them. And that is what retention does. All right. We're out of time. I want to thank Hardy Murphy for being here with us, as well as Rachel Burke and Dr. Dorothea Irwin. And I want to thank Senator Linda Rogers for joining us for the first half of the program. For co-host Lori McRobbie, for engineer Mike Pashkash, and for our producer Nathan Moore, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com and from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future healthcare in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey service for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.